Hi, this is Gillian from Rest Reflections. Welcome to this episode of At Work, our fortnightly podcast on all things inequality and justice and oppression in the workplace. I'm really excited to do this episode. It's not scripted at all, but it is a special moment, so a special podcast. It is a second year anniversary. I cannot believe it. It's been two years. It's been two years since we turned Rest Reflections, the blog, into Rest Reflections, the social enterprise. And what a moment it feels like. What an achievement to still be standing. And so I would like to share a few thoughts about the journey. This is what today's episode is going to be all about. A celebration of two years as a social enterprise. I'll tell you, I'll be as candid as I can about some of the challenge of running a social enterprise, what I've learned along the way, what I might do differently. And as I said, really, really speaking at the top of my head, from the bottom of my heart, without a script, whatever comes. So join me, take a seat, grab yourself a cup of tea and let's spill it. So spilling the tea two years, two years, just a little bit of background for those of you who don't know, I go on and on and on about race reflection, the history, how the social enterprise has come about. But I am conscious that not all of you listen to me going on and on about this stuff. And of course, perhaps to some of you, it might be the first time that you're even here at work. And so a reminder that at work is our fortnightly podcast on all things inequality, injustice and oppression, that we welcome questions and queries and dilemmas and that you can reach us by email using contact at restreflections.co.uk or at work at restreflections.co.uk. So that is it for baseline and for housekeeping. Now let's get into it. So what's the history of restreflection? As I have said a number of times, Reflection started as a blog and that blog in itself started from experience that I've had myself, feeling that I could not think freely, feeling quite silenced within psychology when it came to thinking around issues of race in particular, oppression perhaps more generally, but certainly a very strong sense of being gagged when it comes to talking about racism. Now, this is not my experience alone. If you are familiar with the literature around training and psychology or psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, there are some really common overlapping experience of often feeling alienated, feeling othered, feeling excluded, and sometimes treated quite violently, actually, if one insists to bring to the table, to bring to the collective or conscious awareness issues to do with race. And so this was really the driving force. One day I'll give a bit more of the specific. I'm not able to in this moment, but I will give a lot more of the specific in, in, in due course. But suffice to say that the way that I have experienced psychology, in particular clinical psychology, has been very, very violent. Some of this violence I've discussed, I've written about candidly in Living Well Black. I discussed some of the issues and some of the articles 
of first reflection and go back to the issues because those have been my formative experience when it comes to my own scholarship around whiteness and around racism. So that is the background. And so from that experience, difficult experience, traumatic even we might say experiences, sprung the need to have a space where I could speak, where I could write and where I could maybe grow intellectually in a way that felt less censored, where there was less gatekeeping. So that started the blog and I blogged for maybe six, seven years. And then I was doing different things. At the same time, I was doing my consultancy, I was doing the doctorate in psychology. I was also doing a lot of community work. And in the end, I decided to try and put all the things together to have it in one place, number one, but also to try to monetize the multiple capacity building activities that I was doing all over the place, really, more than I should have been doing arguably. And so this is how Race Reflection, the social enterprise, came about. And so I combined my consultancy skills and some of the clients that I already had. I combined the writing and I had developed quite a bit, I think, as a writer. I had pieces published academically, so in peer-reviewed articles, but also in the general press. And I think it's important. I'm very clear and very passionate about reaching wide audiences with our message. So that's very important. I had that, so I combined that. And so then we created a membership structure. And from that membership structure came the development of formal training opportunities e-learning solutions. I mean, go onto the website and see all that we have to offer. But I guess the point that I want to make here is that it all started with pain, with distress, possibly even with trauma. And that takes me to, I think it is Hook who speaks of coming to theory, of coming to the world of ideas because of suffering, because of the experience that she had and the need to understand and the need to conceptualize and the need to theorize. And I can definitely, most definitely identify with that, except that I've took it perhaps in different directions. Of course, I was the writing. I would definitely not compare myself to Bell Hook. But nonetheless, one thing that we have in common is our love for theory and for ideas and for conceptualizing. And this is at the core of what reflection does in terms of our writing, in terms of our training, in terms of kind of pushing the thinking when it comes to the reproduction of inequality, injustice and oppression in various contexts. So that is the history and that is the background. And I feel that I've taken a lot of time to talk about the background. So let us get into the hot stuff, right? What is it that I have learned? What is it that I have found difficult? So the first thing that I would say, and I guess I have maybe spoken about that to some degree, is that I was not prepared. I was not prepared for the success of rest reflections. I did not expect that people would follow me. I didn't expect that people would want to know about what we had to offer. And it had felt for certainly the first 18 months, at least the first year, uh, possibly the first 18 months and to some degree, but much less today, as though we were always running to put the fire off, so to speak, when it comes to the demand. And I hate to compare demand for our services 
as fire. But this is really how it has felt, where I felt a lot of pressure. And essentially, I felt that pressure because I wasn't prepared. And why wasn't I prepared? I wasn't prepared because I had low expectation of myself and I had low expectation of people. And so therefore, when the demand came, I was overwhelmed and I had to really quickly try to put a team together and to develop and structure the organization in a way that I didn't anticipate from the get-go. And so that has taught me a very, very important lesson in life. Actually, more than one lesson in life, but certainly a big one. And the big one is that people eventually follow you. A lot of the thing that I was writing about maybe five, ten years ago, a lot of the thing that I was saying five, ten years ago within psychology were considered blasphemous. I use this word very, very carefully to the point where I had conversation with peers and talking about oppression and marginalization. And people would actually laugh in my face because they heard the, the word oppression and I was funny to them. So today, when I see the mainstreaming of those ideas within the profession, it's interesting to me. And some people said there's always a cost to people who perhaps pioneer particular ideas who are maybe a little bit ahead of the curve of thinking that they tend to be punished, that they don't tend to reap the benefits of their knowledge production. I don't know that I would necessarily 100% agree with that because, you know, where I stand today, I probably wouldn't change anything that I've gone through, if I'm honest. But nonetheless, what it means is that I've gone from being a little bit of an outsider, perhaps considered way too radical, perhaps considered even a little bit through, I hate to say that, but I will say it, lunatic lens, like someone who doesn't know what she's talking about, someone that is, you know, see oppression, discrimination, racism everywhere to actually being taken very seriously. And I never doubted that what I had to say mattered and what I had to say actually was anchored in my lived reality and the reality and the experience of other people. So while I was quite marginal and maybe my thinking was quite marginal, now I would say, I think with a degree of confidence that I am perhaps certainly within the field of psychology leading the conversation. So as an organization, we are now leading the conversation when it comes to thinking around racism, racial trauma from a psychological lens. So that is interesting. And so the lesson here is that really you have to stick to your guts. You have to really trust that what you are saying, if you feel it from the, you know, the pit of your guts, that it matters, that it is important. Eventually people turn around. The second thing that is related to that, and, and, and maybe it's related to black women in business, and maybe it's also partly to do with my history and some of the experience that I've had, is that we can sometimes underestimate, or maybe that is an interization of the societal messages around what we are capable of, and so therefore maybe an interization of racism or misogynoir. But there's something that I've learned about how we adapt to some degree to other people's expectations. I'm glad that I had this experience with reflection, which has really pushed me to think that, well, gosh, it's important that we don't take in what people expect of us. And I've learned that perhaps if I had been, say, better prepared, 
if I had trusted and believed that race reflection could pick up and become what it is today, that we would be in a different place. Now, I'm very happy with the, the pace of growth of race reflections. Remember that race reflection is a business that is being looked after in the midst of various other things. And so therefore, this is why we pick carefully who we work with. We're very concerned with building a reputation for ourselves, building our brand as opposed to just going all out and doing what I call chicken factory work. That's not what we are into. But nonetheless, uh, what that has proved to me is that I always had that potential, but I didn't know that it was there. And so that takes me also to perhaps some of the difficulty that I've had and to issues to do maybe with envy and with issues to do with threat. And so those are important, painful, difficult experiences to, to reflect on publicly. But I do want to say that when someone, and I'm not talking about me only there. But when someone is repeatedly excluded, ridiculed, even brutalized structurally for a number of years, and then they go on to do things that are, if not exceptional, let's say out of the ordinary, then, you know, as someone that is perhaps inclined to analytic thinking, it makes you think what was going on. What was it that was being stopped? What was the motivation, conscious or otherwise, for those experiences that I've had? So I, I, you know, I'm not just talking from me. Of course, that is my reference point. I'm talking to other people in my own research, having found again and again that those Black people who, as children, were gifted, were deemed to be gifted. For whatever reason, they ended up having more difficult experience with the institutions, right? And I've spoken about that because that was one of my findings when I was doing my first doctoral research that really took me by surprise and gave me a different set of lens to interpret some of the experience that I've had. Now, all of this stuff can happen unconsciously. They can happen at collective level. They can happen at group level. But what I'm saying is that we need to pay attention to who is experiencing particular violence. And that's something that I'm also taking with me. What else can I share that I didn't expect? Maybe a little bit on sexism and misogynoir. I must say, I don't do very well with being undermined or when I have feelings I'm being, I'm being undermined. Of course, it is historical and certainly biographical. But I, I would say that I've had a lot of that and I would say that I've got better at dealing with it. Uh, and so I do want to say that to me, when I've had experience where I've had to chase in voices in a way that I do not expect a man, certainly not a white man, would need to do to get paid for work. And sometimes from very, very large clients. I mean, we're talking about multi-millionaire organization and we had to chase them as us. The, you know, the little guys had to chase them to obtain payment for services rendered months ago, things of that nature. That has taught me something important about the face of business, right? And we're taken seriously. Now, I don't consider myself actually a corporate person. I'm not. I don't come from that background. I'm not 
even a business person by training. What I know about running race reflections as a social enterprise, I've learned and I've had to learn very quickly some of it using, you know, what I know, uh, you know, about relationship, about people, about how people's mind work. So applying, of course, my knowledge of psychology, group analysis, what I've come across clearly has been helpful. But when it comes to business as a subject matter, this is not necessarily necessarily something that I have been trained, right? Other than, you know, the intersection of what we do when it comes to exclusion, when it comes to oppression, when it comes to injustice in the business world, when it comes to injustice, oppression, exclusion within organization that I know as well. But as opposed to actually, how do we make money? How do we build a solid brand? All that I've had to learn. Now, I wouldn't say that I've done a poor job. I'm quite proud of what I've achieved with what I knew, actually. I could have done better. Of course, we could always have done better. But on balance, I think that the website, what we stand for, our message, our training, I think we're really solid in what we offer, actually. I think that we're the strongest. I'm bound to say that, people. But I really think that we offer something that's very solid when it comes to the evidence base, when it comes to the theory, when it comes to the application, I would actually die on this hill that we are probably the best providers out there. But so what that means really is that not only I was uh, disadvantaged because lack of preparation, I've also had to learn very quickly things that don't come with the training and what I've learned at school and at university. That's very important. Something else that is related to that in terms of my own personal reflection is that I had a really problematic relationship with money. God, and it took me a long time to realize that I had a really problematic relationship with money. And when I said problematic relationship with money, is that I wasn't aware of how scared I was of money, of big money. I wasn't scared. This is something that I've learned running this enterprise and part of, you know, not being prepared, not thinking big, not thinking ahead was also part of my own ambivalence around the material and what it means to live comfortably coming from an inner city background, you know, having lived most of my life broke, actually, really broken, struggling with money and the kind of fantasies that money has come to represent exploitation, colonialism, violence, greed, all those kinds of messages, implicit messages and association I had with money, but they were so implicit in the way that are related to the business that they became blockers in that, for example, I found it really hard to ask for more money or I found it really hard. I found it and, you know, observed that I'm speaking in the past tense. I found it really hard to really value the business at its real value. I found it quite hard to just imagine that we could be making six figure or even seven figures in the future. And part of that was, of course, because justice is at the core of what I do. And so what would it mean to make money and also to do justice work? Now, I have, I'm still grappling with those ethical dilemma, right? With those value conflicts, we might even say, they will never disappear. And I hope that they never disappear because they keep us on our talk, thinking about how do we give back, about how do we do work that allow us to live 
well because we deserve to live well. And I think that fundamentally, a lot of people will have problem with money or problematic relationship with money are people who don't feel that they deserve money. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, capitalism, materialism shouldn't be dismantled and that there are fundamental issues with earning money full stop, whichever way we earn money that is going to entail the exploitation of, you know, the proletariat. We can go into all this kind of analysis and largely I agree. But the reality is that the work that we do is difficult work. The work that we do is ethical work. The work that we do is important work. And so I don't feel as conflicted as I used to be with living well out of doing this work as opposed to living well, right? Doing work that is unethical, that is damaging to society. That's not to say that the ethical dilemma completely disappeared. No, that would be dishonest of me to say so. But what I'm saying is that it doesn't stop me from actually saying, how is it that we can maximize the impact that we have within organization and within society using what we do best, selling what we do best? Yes, it is still a capitalist model. There is absolutely no doubt. But what we try to do, as you know, if you engage with our work, is that we give back, we give grant, we put out there some of our knowledge so that they can benefit people who might not otherwise be able to access our services. We are a social enterprise. And the alternative to being a social enterprise would be to be in a charity. And yeah, I'm not going to go into that at length and in some details because there are charities out there that I have some respect for. But what I would say is that the charity model in and on itself, I would say possibly even more colonial. So there is no way actually to get out of configuration that we have inherited that we need to navigate one way or the other to survive and ideally to survive and to make a difference in the world. Right, I feel I've spoken quite a bit. It's been a fairly long podcast and I still think that I haven't given you anything of substance. What can I say? What else can I tell you? Let me Thing. Perhaps I could tell you that I feel deeply, deeply humbled, honored, joyful, blessed for doing what I do every day, every single day, even when there's a crisis, even when I think this is tough, even when I'm struggling with my PhD and I think God is so hard, so much to, to challenge, that fundamentally I feel blessed to be able to do work that is so important to me, work that I passionately believe in and work that I know makes a difference. I think that is a privilege. It is a privilege to be able to do this work and to shift people's thinking sometimes and to shift organizational cultures sometimes. And so that's all I want to say. Yeah, I could spend hours and hours talking about my experience, but I hope I've given you an honest flavor of who I am as a director of Rest Reflection. I'm not perfect. I'm learning as I go. I tell you what is solid is what we deliver training-wise and in terms of our services. Could we get better in terms of how things are delivered? I think we could easily, and I think we will over time. But remember where we come from. Remember the kind of surprise, let's call it, demand for our services that seem to spring out of nowhere. 
So two years of Rest Reflections, a social enterprise. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported us. I hope I haven't rumbled on and on. I realized that when I become really passionate, sometimes I eat my words. I forget my third person S. This is something that I've never really got into, even though I've been in this country 20 years or more. And so I want to thank you for bearing with me and seeing, I hope, some clarity in the passionate message. And so thank you again, everyone. Two years of rest reflections. I'm grateful. Until next time, please take care.